The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I thought it might be helpful for you if I just took a, a moment or two to introduce myself so you know who is this stranger that's here speaking before you. My wife Leanne and I moved to Minneapolis two years ago to attend Bethlehem College and Seminary. We had lived in northern Michigan where I served as pastor of a small and blessed congregation there. Both of my daughters have graduated from the college here, and so now I get to follow in their footsteps. (laughs) And I get to say, as both a parent and as a student, I love this place. I love the spiritual nurturing that my daughters received. I love the sweet fellowship of my seminary cohort. And I love this church and its heart to train and to send out men and women into the service of Christ's church. Along with our daughters, we have three sons, and not to one-up Ken and his new grandchildren, eight and soon-to-be nine grandchildren. My sermon this morning has much to do with marriage, and so it is fitting that I say that after being married to Leanne now for almost 33 years, Marriage has been to me a sweet, sweet taste of the gospel. And that is my heart for you. And so I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And I might say that just with those words alone, I might already have your attention. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And to introduce it, I just say, why this text for this sermon? If ever we needed the wisdom of this song, it is now. Our culture, our whole world is lost at sea, adrift in wave after wave of sexual confusion, distortion, and perversion. Like fish utterly unaware of the water they swim in, we barely perceive how deeply the world's values and mores have embedded themselves in our hearts and in our thinking. We desperately need to have our hearts and our minds reformed, transformed by the Word of God. And so I invite you to hear the Word of the Lord from the Song of Songs. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but 
my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. In the sermon, I want to ask two questions, the second of which I want to offer two answers. The first question, how are we to understand the imagery in this book? My answer, as the music of lovers. The second question, why is this book even in the Bible? My two answers. First, that it presents a biblical portrait of purity. And secondly, it is part of Scripture's grand story, the story of redemption. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into these questions. Father, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your word. Help us to see the truth about ourselves about our hearts and the way they work, about our lives in this world. Help us to see you and who you are. Help us to see Jesus and then seeing God cause our hearts to believe what we see and read in your word so that we might be, by your spirit, transformed by your truth. God, Open our eyes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how are we to understand this imagery? Well, through most of history, both Jewish and Christian interpreters have read the Song of Songs allegorically. That is, to redirect the imagery away from human sexuality. To read the song as an allegory portraying God's love for his people. Thus, for example, a Jewish reading of verses 2 to 4 here in chapter 1 would take the woman to be Israel, the man, the king, to be God. The kisses of his mouth are the, the giving of the law, the entering into covenant. And the bedroom chambers are the promised land that God brought Israel into. Christian allegory follows a similar strategy but understands Christ and his bride, the church, to be the interpretive key. Concerning verse 13, Longman comments, 
This verse has stretched the imagination of allegorical interpreters with its explicit sensuality. Cyril of Alexandria, around the year 400 AD, is at his creative best when he suggests that the verse describes what we would today call biblical theology. The breasts are the Old and New Testaments. Jesus Christ is the sachet of myrrh. The New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. Jesus spans the Testaments as a sachet spans the woman's two breasts. Well, to that I say, Cyril gets at least bonus points for creativity. (laughs) We will consider the value of an allegorical approach in a moment. But for now, let me only say, we would do well to read the song as the music of lovers. A man and a woman pointing us to all that is good and right and pure and holy in the embrace of your spouse. Let's look at verses 9 and 10, where he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. This may simply be a statement of her regal beauty and dignity, but there is another way to take this verse. Back in verse 7, she asks where he'll be working at noon. Moreover, She does not want to come veiled, that is, in the open where she will be seen by others. She wants to meet him unveiled, alone. And he tells her teasingly in verse 8, Oh, you'll know where to find me. And then he adds, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. There is an ancient story told of a lesser king whose army was facing Pharaoh and his mighty horde on the field of battle. Though vastly outnumbered, the king had a strategy, for he knew that Pharaoh's chariots were led only by stallions. So when the charge began, the king sent in his secret weapon, a brood of mares all in heat. They went running every which way across the battlefield. And where do you suppose Pharaoh's chariots went? In other words, the shepherd is saying, Oh, sweetheart, you're driving me to distraction. The language of the song grows powerfully passionate as the man and the woman express their desire for their beloved. And yet, as they each describe the other's beauty washing one another with their words. Simile deepens to metaphor. Their words carefully express the beauty, mystery, eros, without doing harm to the reader. Their imagery, the imagery of their words, is both powerful and pure. You see, we were created for joy, deep satisfying joy that can hardly be put into words. And so we use other words, word pictures to express it. The song gives us word pictures of love between a man and his wife, love that is mutual, exclusive, all in, and beautiful. How are we to understand this imagery? As the music of lovers. 
And now my second question is a big picture question. Why is this book even in the Bible? Now I offer two answers that I see from the scriptures. The first is that the song displays a biblical portrait of purity. That is, a portrait which stands in stark contrast to a rather common definition of purity that goes something like this. Here's the line, don't cross it. On the other side of the line, that's bad, that's not right, don't go there. On this side of the line, you're okay. Now, boundaries are not bad. In fact, they can be very good and important and necessary at times. So I'm not saying don't establish boundaries. What I'm saying is that those boundaries as a definition of purity don't work. There's two problems, at least, that I see. The first is that that line can get drawn wherever you want. It does get drawn in all sorts of places, and it changes. Changes with age, changes with peer expectations, cultural conditions, and frankly, by our own desires. If I want to be on the other side of that line, I will find a way to move the line so I can do what I want to do. We can find all sorts of reasons to allow a redrawing of that line. But I think there's an even deeper problem with defining our purity by such boundaries. This definition allows us to come as close as possible to the line and do everything but whatever's on the other side and still claim purity. Yet, as Jesus warns, this is only an external appearance of purity. We cannot commit, Jesus says, we cannot commit the act of adultery all day long and still have wicked, adulterous hearts. Likewise, Paul warns against such superficial handling of our hearts bent on sin. Concerning such lines in the sands, he writes, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What we need, rather, is a biblical portrait of purity. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19, points the way. I invite you to turn there. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. There we read, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This counsel to set your affections on your wife comes in the context of a warning against promiscuity and adultery, warning a young man not to heed the siren song of the adulteress and her seductions. Here, here is a way to kill lust and every sort of sexual sin. Passionately love your wife. 
The Bible does not call us to deaden or even temper our passions. God has created us as passionate beings. As sinful people, every aspect of our lives is marred, twisted by sin. Our hearts are completely misaligned, and so the directives of Scripture are not aimed at killing our passions, but at killing sin by awakening our passions to what is good and right and pure and holy. In my illustration of the line, this is not merely staying away from the line, even a good distance away from the line. Rather, it is running 100 miles an hour in the other direction. In the other direction is full of joy and delight under the promises of God. There are many reasons for me to avoid sexual immorality. The damage it would do to my family, to my wife, to my reputation. I would lose my job. I'd lose my place in the seminary. These devastating consequences are all powerful weapons to keep me from sin. But the reality is, is every adulterer has considered these consequences and decided that the promised pleasures of sin were worth the risk losses. One of the greatest weapons I have against sexual, sexual immorality of all sorts is my passion for my wife. I treasure loving her. I feel and being loved by her. I fill my eyes and my heart with her beauty. Why would I settle for second-rate pleasures when I've been given the banquet of my own wife? Now, I do recognize that there is a significant danger in saying that to you all, that somehow you hear this word as only fitting for those who are married or even only for those who are happily married. My heart, my, my aim is that our whole congregation, all of us together, would own the biblical vision for sexual purity, namely for all that is good and right and pure and holy in the embrace of a husband and wife. That we would hold to this biblical vision in such, and hold it up with such high esteem that it shapes our conduct in all of our relationships. And so, to those who are single and looking toward marriage, I offer this encouragement from my own experience. My passion for my wife was a powerful weapon against sin even before we were married. It began by God's grace as a teenager long before I ever knew who she was. To those who are married, I encourage you, set your affections fully on your spouse. Train your heart and your mind to love your spouse exclusively. And if things are not as they ought to be in your marriage, maybe it's time to make a new start by washing your spouse with your words. Don't turn to porn in pursuit of satisfaction. That is the deadly sort of pursuit this very passage in Proverbs warns against. It will kill you. To those who are single and content in that calling, 
you have a wonderful opportunity to model for all of us, to put on display for all of us what may be the greatest weapon we all have against sexual immorality, and that is our passion for Christ. Let me explain. Several years ago, I was meditating and memorizing my way through Psalm 119. I came to verse 32 and read these words. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. At the time, this verse puzzled me. I don't know why. It just struck me as, what on earth does he mean here? I I didn't get it. What did the psalmist mean when you enlarge my heart? I wrote some questions in my journal and just let them linger. And, and it was several months later, after I'd moved well beyond that verse in Psalm 119, I was doing other reading, and it was several months later, I was reading um, uh, John Owen's classic work on the mortification of sin. And, and in an introduction there, Kelly Capick writes, to respond to the distorting nature of sin, you must set your affections on the beauty and glory of God, the loveliness of Christ, and the wonder of the gospel. Then he quotes Owen, were our affections filled, taken up, and possessed with these things, what access could sin with its painted pleasures, with its sugared poisons, with its envenomed baits have unto our souls? Resisting sin, according to Owen, comes not by deadening your affections, but by awakening them to God himself. Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with the spirit of life so there is no longer room for sin. As soon as I read this, I immediately recognized the answer, grabbed my Psalm 119 journal and wrote that down there. Here was the answer to my question from Psalm 119.34. I will run, I will run in the way of your commandments when you, Lord, you enlarge, that is, take up and fill my heart. Such a heart is a gift from God purchased by the blood of Christ and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. So pray for it. Pray earnestly for such a heart. So why is the Song of Songs in the Bible? My first answer is it is nothing less than a beautiful exposition of Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. The song is a biblical portrait of purity. But it is also more than that. I'd say much more than that. There is a second answer to our question, why is a song even in the Bible? I would ask you to consider the song's place in Scripture's grand story, the story of redemption. From the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and the account of creation, sexuality is not a side note. Rather, it is highlighted. I will trace this theme briefly through Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God creates male and female as image bearers. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, Adam is made aware of his incompleteness and Eve is given as a gift to complete him. 
Genesis 2, 24, God establishes and defines the marriage union. Genesis 2, 25, the whole creation account closes by declaring, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Human sexuality is front and center as part and parcel of the beauty and creation over which God declares, and it was very good. And then, only seven verses later, after they have disobeyed God, we read in Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. In shame, they covered themselves with fig leaves. They hid themselves from God. The most immediate consequences to the fall are related to their sexuality. Then God speaks judgment, and in Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That Hebrew word for desire is found only three times in the entire Old Testament. The second time it occurs is close by in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7. And there we get a very clear picture of what it means when the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Here, sin desires to have dominion and dominance and control over Cain, but Cain must resist and rule over it. So this helps us understand God's words of judgment to Eve back in chapter 3. It points to the power struggles that now stand between a husband and wife. Desire has become horribly misaligned, warped and bent on selfish ends. So we see that human sexuality is highlighted in both the creation account and in the consequences of the fall. The rest of Scripture, from Genesis 4 on, the rest of Scripture is the story of God's plan, purposes, and His work of redemption. So as we consider why is the Song of Songs in the Bible as part of the story, I might ask it this way. What if the song were not in Scripture? What then does the Bible say about sex? By way of example, the stories are overwhelmingly steeped in sin. Adultery, prostitution, sodomy, that is, homosexuality, incest, polygamy, abuse, rape, lust, and we haven't even gotten out of the book of Genesis yet. By way of instruction, there's mostly warning, caution, and correction. But even still, the song is more than the standout positive example. In the song, we find the story of sexuality redeemed. That may be most evident in the Song of Songs, chapter 7, and verse 10. Turn there because I want you to see this. Song of Songs, chapter 7, and verse 10. Here, 
in this verse, in the midst of the song, the song of songs, we find the third and final occurrence of that Hebrew word for desire. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Here in the song is desire rightly aligned. Man and woman are once again in the garden, but this time they are naked and feel no shame. There is the healing of intimacy, a celebration of their union, no power play, only the joyful, playful giving and receiving. And the song honestly tells us that not all is healed yet, just like the already not yet in all of our present experience of redemption. We are not complete yet. Within the story of redemption, we have been now freed from the guilt of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from the power of sin, let sin no longer have dominion over you. But we are not yet free from the presence of our sin, our own or others against us. Problems still exist in intimacy. And so the song is not without its cautions. The song warns us of the dangers of love. We still wound those around us. Our passions may and do still lead us astray. The song reminds us of the power of love and warns us of the dangers of love. We must not always follow our hearts. One of the recurring choruses in the song is the woman's warning to the young ladies, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The song is here to help point our desires, our longings in the right direction. Again, Longman writes, there are only two relationships that are mutually exclusive to humans. We may have only one spouse and we may have only one God. These are the only two relationships where jealousy can be a positive emotion. And here is what the allegorists get right. To long for the consummation of all things, the day of our redemption, when not only will the divine human relationship be fully redeemed, but so also will the human-to-human relationships. Every facet of our human experience is in need of redemption. The song is here to tell us that our sexuality is not outside of God's redemptive work. Our sin, my sin and its 10,000 permutations, deadens our hearts, turns our eyes, twists our passions. But this too, God aims to redeem He sent his son to bear the guilt of your sin. He has given his spirit to overcome the power of sin until the day when you will no longer experience even the presence of sin. All, all, all will be redeemed. This song, the song of songs, is designed to sanctify you along the way to straighten out your crooked thinking, to heal your wounds, to renew your mind and your heart. The song is for all of us, 
whether married, happily, or struggling, single, content, or longing to be married, this song is here for you, telling you how things were meant to be, why they are not as they ought to be, and of God's glorious, gracious work to redeem and restore all that has been lost. The Song of Songs sings God's story of redemption over even this, your sexuality. It was a king, Solomon, a son of David, who wrote this song. There is a king, Jesus, the son of David, who now sings this song over you. He left his throne and took on human flesh to bear our infirmities. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having washed her with, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, without blemish. Jesus desires and has promised your full redemption to restore you to all that is good and right and pure and holy. I want to close with an important word to those wounded. You may have deep and painful wounds. Maybe your experience of sexual intimacy has not been intimate at all, but painful. When I speak about the beauty of sexuality, your heart may have responded in dismay because it's too hard to see beauty in something that has caused so much pain. Even if those wounds are from the distant past, they may still invade and wreak havoc on your longings and cause you to wonder if there could ever be beauty in sexual intimacy. I want to say to you, this song is here for you. God aims to redeem, heal, bring about more than you could ever hope to think. There is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. And his banner over you is love. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our Redeemer, our Savior, a great God. Father, by your purposes, Lord Jesus, in your obedience to your Father, Holy Spirit, by your power, grant that you would bring about the realities of redemption that your whole word speaks of and points us to and sets our hopes and our affections and our longings toward. God, would you make it real in all of our relationships God, lead us and draw us to yourself with hope and eager expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 
13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.